0: If you turn to Genesis chapter 14, uh, we're getting close to a couple of very familiar passages here in chapter 14. And tonight we kind of set the stage uh, for this family that has traveled across this uh, region of the world that we call Syria and Jordan. Uh, Abraham has come from Haran, he's entered the land of Canaan. Uh, There was a famine in the land, he got into an initial a fight amongst the inhabitants of the land he goes down to Egypt thinking that something good is going to happen he's now come back and, and we find that strangely enough oddly enough that there is a war against flesh and spirit against the righteous and the unrighteous against those that walk in the spirit those that walk in the flesh those that are carnal and those that are spiritual and, and so Abraham Remember this, that as we speak about being saved, or as we speak about being a believer, Abraham was a type of a believer, a type of a saved person, though his price, like your price and my price for our sin, would not be paid until Jesus actually died on Calvary's cross, was laid in the grave, and raised three days later. But he believed by faith, he died in faith, and thereby is really a type of a Christian, if you will, though he was not technically a Christian. He represented what we would call uh, the side of of this battle that's going to transpire that would be inhabited by believers, people that were trusting in God, resting in God, had faith in God, uh, were were walking with God, desired to have lives that exemplified uh, who God is. And so Abraham in that sense, is a type of believer. He's also a picture or a type of Christ in the Old Testament. And so when we use the word type, we're looking at an Old Testament example of something that will become completely clear in the New Testament. And so tonight, uh, we see this this war really of flesh and spirit that begins uh, in earnest here in Genesis chapter 14. We'll tackle the first 16 verses tonight. So let's pray and ask God to Speak to us through his word. Father, we again uh, love you. We're so grateful as we learned this morning to just be able to call you Jesus' friend. And we pray that as we sit down in the living room, maybe a little bit like a home study tonight, that you would speak to us, encourage us and strengthen us. And as we study your word, would our eyes be open to the truth? Would you help us to understand and to rightly interpret and to apply the things that we find here in this passage. And so, Lord, bless us as we study. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 here in Genesis chapter 14, And it came to pass, in, in the days of, of Amraphel, the, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elisar, Shadolamir, the king of Elam, and Tadal, king of the nations, and that isn't the title king like he, you know, was out in the ocean somewhere. His name is Axi Tadal, and the word is translated "their nations," and the Hebrew is actually Goyim, and so he would have been the king of the non-Hebrew people uh, in the region in the land of the Lower Jordan Valley, and so he was a Gentile king that was mixed in and amongst those that were Hebrews uh, in that basic region. That they made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, and Birsha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Admah, and Shamember, the, the king of Zeboim. And remember, the I M ending always means a people group. So when you see Shabbo-I, it is Sheboim, or the, the people of Zebo. And the king of Bela, that is Zoar, and all these were joined together in the valley of Sidim. That is the Salt Sea. So this whole picture takes place in the lower Jordan Valley. Uh, it is near the modern-day Dead Sea, and there's an area that today is called Sodom. Uh, it's the area of Sodom, and there are asphalt pits and all those things, and we'll get into that a little bit later uh, as, we, as we get a little closer to the study, really, that focuses in on Sodom and Gomorrah. That is the Salt Sea. In 12 years, they served Shadolomir. And the 13th year they rebelled. And so it doesn't take too long for these inhabitants to have made some allegiances and alliances. And then a war breaks out. And this is not a war like you and I would think about a war. um, But it is certainly, as far as they were concerned, uh, an international incident. Because the nations then were very small. They were generally uh, geographic regions. And so they would have their own king. And, and there's a group of kings on each side here. And in the 14th year, Shadolamir and the kings that were with him came and attacked Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnim and Zuzim and Ham and Iminim. That's not Eminem as in the rap artist. <laughs> and Shaveh Kirathim and the Horites in their mountains as far as Seir and as far as El. Paran. So this again is more on the eastern side of the Jordan Valley in what we would call modern day Jordan, land of the Edomites and the Hittites. And so on that side of the valley, you have people that dwelled up in the foothills. And actually, if you go a little further inland, this is also where you would find uh, the rock city of Petra, that region of the world. And then they attacked and turned back and came to In-Mishpat and that is Kadesh, and they attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in, in Hezan Tamar. And so there, there are kind of like these regional skirmishes. They're wars for a little bit of power, and we're going to see in just a moment that there's a very specific thing uh, that was keeping back these, these people who lived in the Jordan Valley. And I think it's a thing that we can look at and probably the one of the greater things we can glean from this passage. It seems to be you know, a little tough to apply to us today, but I think you'll see in a moment that it's not. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the, sing of Ad, no, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in, in battle in the valley of Siddim against Shadolomir, the king of Elam, Tidal, the king of the nations, and Aramfel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elisar, Four kings against five. So you can kind of see that they have now made an allegiance. It's kind of like you have the Allied and the Axis uh, groups in World War II, and they're each on their own side. They've made up their own little uh, group of kind of nation-states, and so they're, they're now going to come together and, and work together uh, in battle. And now the valley of Sedim was full of asphalt pits, and this is where it'll get interesting. Here, uh, in a couple of chapters, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. And when you look at the Jordan River Valley, if you haven't been there, if you haven't studied it, uh, there are mountains on both sides of the valley, and so. Uh, in, whether you're in Jordan or whether you're in the Negev on the, on the western side of the Jordan River Valley, they're very, very, very steep mountains. And in fact, uh, it is in those mountains that the, the city of the Essenes, the city of Qumran, uh, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. The reason that they were not found up to that point, uh, because they had been there for a very, very, very long time, at, at the better part of 2,000 years, the reason being the mountains are in, in unbelievably steep they are unbelievably rocky, and they are also unbelievably desolate. And so this is a very desolate region of the world. Uh, there is no archaeological evidence that it has been anything but desolate probably in the last three to 4,000 years. Uh, there is no evidence that there were forests in that area. It has always been as it is right now, very desolate, very hot, very dry. And so here, here is this region to where some fled into the mountains. He took all the goods of of Sodom and Gomorrah and their provisions and they went their way. Now notice this, they also took Lot, Abraham's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And we'll pick up the last four verses in a little bit. So the first thing that we see is Abraham, this watchman who's, who's watching over his people and he is going to come to the, the rescue, if you will. This part of the story is largely historical, and so it provides a backdrop so we can kind of understand a little bit of the history uh, of the Hebrew people when they initially settled uh, in the lower Jordan River Valley and then began to reach upwards into the northern extent. And in fact, we're going to find that Abram uh, is going to leave this region, and he's going to actually go off and, uh, and rescue Lot. But he's going to go to the city of Dan. And Dan is in the very north of modern day Israel. It's actually very close to the Lebanese border. And in fact, uh, if, you're, if you're in Dan, the city of Dan, there's a national park there. It's the part of the headwaters of the Jordan River. Um, the springs that flow up from Banias in that area and, and make the Jordan River uh, actually begin roughly at the city of Dan. And so there's about 130 miles that separate these two areas. And it is very sparsely populated with a whole bunch of groups of people. And as 18 Pearson said very wisely, uh, really the Bible performs uh, a wonderful connection between the spiritual world and the physical world, but he really said that, that history is really his story, that it's really the story of redemption, God saving man from himself. And so the whole of the Old Testament from here on out really is going to be that picture. It's going to be God stepping into time and working in all these things in spite of the failures of Lot, in spite of Abraham's uh, inadequacies. These historical facts are actually just windows kind of into human character, human nature, if you will. And so you can see that you have Abraham, who's a righteous man. You have Lot, who's righteous but carnal, who, who has chosen to set himself up in a place that he shouldn't be. And one of the things that I always try and use this passage for is an example to us who are righteous, and we're righteous if we're in Christ, amen? If you've received Christ, well, you are righteous, not because you're righteous, but you are righteous because he, he, His righteousness has been put in you, and therefore you yourself are righteous. But you can choose, even as someone who has the righteousness of Christ, to put yourself in harm's way by living a carnal life. You can dwell where you want to dwell. You can go where you want to go. God doesn't put restraints on you and say, okay, because you're my child, um, I'm going to put a brick wall in front of absolutely everything that could harm you, and you'll never get there. You can choose to be carnal. That's a picture of Lot. Lot knows the one true and the living God. He's watched Abraham dwell in a tent. He's watched Abraham live a righteous life. He's seen Abraham fail, repent, and get back to God. He's seen Abraham be always found at his altar. He's had a great example in his uncle Abraham. But he's kind of like, eh, that's good for you, unk, but it's not so good for me. I kind of like it here in Sodom. And so as you look at this passage, you kind of have to look at the backstory behind what's going on, things that we don't actually see. And so Abraham is kind of prepared for all of this. Abraham has actually learned his lesson in that sense. He took a journey down to Egypt and he is now sitting there in this region of the world going, I am not going to make that mistake again. And I will tell you that's one of the lessons that we as the body of Christ need to learn very early on in our walks with the Lord, and that is you may make mistakes, just don't make the same one twice. Amen? Amen? If you make the same one twice, I guarantee you the way the Lord helps you understand it the second time will be more severe than it was the first time, and the third time will be worse than the second, and the fourth and the fifth, and so on and so forth. Each time the Lord will ratchet up the pressure on you because he's trying to steer you away from danger. He knows what's best for you. And so he will use those difficult situations. He'll even let you choose the exact same thing again. But he will also take all the steps necessary to make sure that the next time you choose the wrong thing, it's going to hurt a whole bunch worse than it did the first time. Now, he may in (laughs) grace, you may be that one person that gets by with something that the Lord just doesn't work that way, but in a general sense, the Lord absolutely ratchets up the heat on us. Why was Lot in in such a place as he could be taken? And I think there's some answers in in another passage of Scripture, and it's an interesting thing, you know, when you are a warrior, um, you're ready for war. But people who are not warriors, people who are not battle-hardened, people who are not ready for the things that the Lord has for them, people who have not spent time uh, with the Lord, people who do not listen to the Lord, people who are more concerned about the, the ease of life and the ease of living are not ready for war. I can tell you one of the things that you learn very quickly in ministry is ministry is not a bunch of fun all the time. Now there are things about it that are wonder- they're, they're like anything else. It can be wonderful, it can be fun, it can be refreshing, you can have a great time, and there are smiles and laughters, but ministry is war. And it is an actual battle every day. Sometimes just to get up and continue is a difficulty in ministry. Because the enemy hates the fact that you're living righteously. So he's going to ratchet up, the tension, the pressure on the things around you so that you are going to be in the place where there may be five kings arrayed against you. You you may have an army that is set against you because your Bible says very clearly uh, that we are to have done everything to stand. We're supposed to gird ourselves with the armor of God. If we're going to stand in these last days, we need to be prepared for battle. That happens by practicing a little bit in the area of Warcraft. And I mean that spiritually, of course, for us. I don't want you to go buy guns. Don't go buy ammo. Don't go get yourself bulletproof vests. I'm not talking about that kind of war. I'm talking about spiritual war. And if you are not ready for what is coming at you, then you will end up like Lot, very easily taken captive. And the the world will have its way there was a time during the Battle of Waterloo, which was fought, fought just about this time, uh, it was actually June 18th in 1815, and you may remember that that was Napoleon's final battle, uh, and there they're gathered on the, the field of battle there in modern day uh, Netherlands, but it was it's Belgium then, a the French army under command of Napoleon, and, and the 7th coalition was, was led by the Duke of Wellington, and the Prussian army were joined in with them. And as they were arrayed on the battlefield, the Duke of Wellington had amassed such a massive troop, uh, a huge array of forces and multiple different phalanxes, that as they were gathered on the field, the Duke of Wellington was well behind the battle lines and he was overlooking the troops. And, And what he said was this. He says, I don't know what effect these men will have on others, but they scare me to death. And the reason he said that is these were the best trained, the most fierce, the most feared men that were available to him. And when you get into a war, you don't want a bunch of people who are sitting around practicing being good foodies. You you want people who have been battle tested, battle hardened and know what it's like to go to war. Lot did not know what it was like to go to war. And here's why. Turn to Ezekiel 16, if you would. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Because he had spent his days lounging around, doing pretty much nothing. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. And it says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom or Sodom it's a more correct pronunciation of it She and her daughter had pride So Sodom Gomorrah is the daughter of Sodom twin cities They are located in the lower Jordan Valley by the Dead Sea fullness of food abundance of idleness Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor in the knee. In other words, you can look at the things going on around them and didn't care one iota as long as they were fat and happy. And they were haughty. And they committed abomination before me. And therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. In other words, they were focused on their own pleasure and the things of this earth. That is not where we're supposed to be as the body of Christ. Now, don't mistake what the Bible says and don't mistake what I'm saying about what the Bible says. There's nothing wrong with you enjoying a great meal. There's nothing wrong with you having an easy day occasionally. There's nothing wrong with you going on vacation. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But when that's your life and all you're concerned about is pleasing yourself and basically being idle most of the time. You are easy prey for the enemy because you're not ready for the war. And the war is coming. You're going to wake up one day and the enemy is going to have his sights on you. And instead of being victorious in battle, you're going to be taken captive. You're going to fall prey to the enemy. You're going to find yourself fettered. You're going to find yourself with a rope around your ankle being hauled off to some place you never thought you'd go. So be careful about the ease. If your life is all ease, chances are you are in danger. May not be 100% of you, but it will be a good percentage. You see, we're supposed to focus on God. That's why John, as he writes his letters there in 1 John in chapter 2, he says there in verse 15, he says, Do not love the world. We're the things of the world. And it doesn't mean that you can't have nice things. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy a nice meal. It doesn't mean you can't own an SUV. It doesn't mean that you you know you can't have a nice home. It doesn't mean any of those things. But we're to have one object of affection ultimately, and that's to be the Lord. And everything else is supposed to be underneath that object. We're supposed to love Him supremely. And when we start taking the love that's supposed to be showered upon God, and we begin to shower that upon the things that we own, the things we possess, the things that please us, as John said, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is actually not in them. You you can love the world more than you love God. That's why Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one, you're going to hate the other. Now you may... You may kind of sort of like one and hate the other. You you can have a little bit of mixed affection there. But in a general sense, you're going to serve the one you truly love. It's true in marriage. If you love your spouse, as I love my wife, I serve my wife. She's going to be first. She's not going to be third. She's not going to be fourth. She's the object of my love here on this earth. And so I serve her. She's going to be the primary focus of my attention. The same is true in your relationship with God. If God is second or third, you're not going to have the focus you need to have to be ready for what's going to come your way. John goes on, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, pleasing one's flesh, the lust of the eyes, the things that one can see, and the pride of life, that, that position that you have in this world, power, passion, positions, a good way to look at it, is not of the Father, it's of the world. For the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Well, Lot's concerned for the wrong thing. He's concerned for his own ease. He, he's concerned... Uh, for this place that he's now chosen, as we saw last time, first he just looked at Sodom. Remember that? He was like, oh, that's kind of a cool city. Well, that looks, that looks better than over here, which it's rockier over here, and it's kind of harder to plow the ground. He was looking at the wrong thing. And because he looked at the wrong thing, and he kept his focus on it, he began to move that direction. He didn't go immediately to Sodom. He went like halfway there. And all of a sudden, he's kind of pitched his tent just facing Sodom. And then finally, he says, Well, why not? You know, I've been sitting here looking, watching from afar. It doesn't look that bad to me. And before you know it, he moves into Sodom. And in moving into Sodom, he puts himself in harm's way, even though scripture says Lot was actually a righteous man. Second Peter says this in chapter 2, verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Can you imagine, think for a moment, what Peter is actually saying there? He's saying, Lot moved into Sodom and then his soul was tormented because of what he was seeing day by day that he himself put himself in a position to see. It gives you a picture of exactly how messed up we can be at times. you got to be careful Where you camp. Amen? That means you need to choose wisely the place that you put yourself and your family. Because you can eventually have to deal with an awful lot of stuff because of where you decided to move your family. If you move your family towards God, then you're going to be in good shape. You move your family away from God, you're not going to be in good shape. Where did Lot fail? Where did he fail? When he was in Egypt, he got a taste for the finer things of life. He got a taste for ease. Remember, Abraham left, Abram left Egypt a wealthy man. Lot was with him. He, he, he pulls out of there with all this stuff. That's why the love of money can be the root of all kinds of evil. Not all evil, but all kinds. A lot of different things can come your way because you put yourself in harm's way by being so at ease with the things of the world that you don't care about the things that you should care about. And as Ezekiel said, they could even see the poor and the hungry and the needy and do nothing about it. Because they themselves were so enriched. They enjoyed it. You know, Romans 12 tells us that we are to be conformed not to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? So so we're not supposed to look at the world and go, man, the world looks awesome. We're supposed to look at the world and go, you know, that's probably dangerous for me as a believer. And keep it in perspective. When, When Sodom lost the war... Because Lot put his hope and trust in Sodom, Lot lost as well. It's one of the problems that we have here in our country when we start doing things that unbelievers do and they're directly against the commands of the Lord, we set ourselves up to be in trouble with God, even though we ourselves are righteous. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can put yourself in harm's way along with the unrighteous when you act like the unrighteous. When you fail to stand up for what is right in the face of opposition, when you just cave in because it's the easier thing to do, and I'm going to address this on Thursday night so you know where I'm going. When the church fails to stand for what God stands for, then we put ourselves in harm's way. We're standing in a place that we shouldn't be standing. We're sitting in a place that we shouldn't be sitting. We're walking with people we shouldn't be walking with. We even begin to talk like people that we shouldn't talk like. Lot's a picture of this. Lot had every advantage, and yet he didn't take any of those advantages for the kingdom. He took those advantages for himself. And so what happens to him? God spanks him. He ends up in captivity. You do not want to end up in captivity. You don't want to be taken captive with the rest of the people that you don't have anything in common with except you you hung out in their area of sin. I I fear for our state. I really do. I fear for where we're going. I, I have no idea how this is going to shake out with this new process we have for selecting candidates, it basically is the most popular now. We've turned into a popularity contest. There's no opposing view. It's just whoever thinks like the people. we got a lot of people that don't think like Jesus in this state. They don't act like Jesus. They don't believe what Christians believe. And so we may well have zero good opportunities in the upcoming election cycle. It's going to be very, very, very interesting to see how this all shakes out. So I'm encouraging you, family, get out and vote. And vote for people who hold godly values and godly opinions on every subject you can possibly find out about them. Because if we don't, We have no one to blame but ourselves. We may end up suffering because of the rest of the people that we've chosen to live with, but at least you can have done your part. Proverbs 3 verse 11 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. See, I actually love this passage. Why? Why? For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a Father, the Son, in whom he delights. Amen? So, so the Lord corrects people when we're going the wrong way, because he doesn't want us to get too far away from where he is. If we don't listen to those rebukes, if we won't hear what he has to say, if we won't change direction, then he just ratchets up the pressure until we finally get the, the understanding that we need to have, because he loves us. Most of you who are parents in this room, you know exactly what this principle is like. You know, and the first time first time your child spills a glass of milk, you don't go, you know, okay, that's it, I'm disowning you. <laughs> you <know. laughs> it's over. No, you, you, you might say, you know, maybe next time you ought to try putting that glass down before you try and do a back hand spring across the kitchen or whatever. <laughs> you know, you give them a little bit of simple correction. But about the 40th time, when it happens to go inside of the stereo cabinet or whatever because they've done exactly what you told them not to do for the 40th time, then the the penalty needs to be a little more severe because they're obviously not getting it. God is exactly the same in the way he chastens his children. It's appropriate measures. It's appropriate severity. On the flip side of all of this, Lot was ill-prepared and he was living at ease Abraham was prepared. He was a wise warrior. He was ready to go. Verse 13. And then the one, here in Genesis 14, who had escaped, came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, that they were allies with Abram, And now Abram heard that his brother, literally his nephew, but his brother spiritually, a fellow righteous person, was taken captive. And he armed his 318 trained servants. Now, that's not a large contingent for an army, amen? That's a small expeditionary force. That's a tiny group. You know, it's a couple of platoons, is all it is. It's not a gigantic army. But it is significant given given the population uh, of Canaan at the time. And notice, they were trained servants who were born in his house. He knew who they were. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And so here's where the story tells us the the scope of this expedition. From Sodom to Dan, depending on how you travel, between 100 to 120 miles. It's not a long distance, but it's a long distance when you're on foot. And it's a long distance when you're not wearing modern-day footwear. It's a long distance when you don't have uh, all kinds of MREs. You don't don't pack your stuff, unzip it in a Ziploc bag, throw some boiling water in it, and it's a meal ready to eat. They were taking with them all the supplies that they would need or most of the supplies that they would need to, to fight this fight. And they're going to travel a very long distance. So these guys were trained. And furthermore, where they're going was the largest fortified city in the Canaanite world, the city of Dan. If you travel there today, the the walled section of the city where you come into the national park, uh, some some of the buttress walls in there are still 30 feet tall. A very large Canaanite city. Multiple gates, 90 degree turns. You're, you're not just going to walk up even with 300 guys and attack the city of Dan and be successful. You need to be trained in the art of war. That means Abraham was preparing even though there was no fighting going on. And I wonder sometimes if the church fails at some of the things that God gives us to do because we're not training when we're not fighting. We just kind of hang out. We're, we're not getting ready for the next thing. I can tell you something in ministry. there's always the next thing. always, it's just around the corner. So he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued, pursued them as far as Hoahh, which is north of Damascus. So now he's gone another 60 miles into modern-day Syria. So ultimately, as he transits all this journey, he's traveling hundreds of miles with this little force, and he's attacking them at night. He's using wisdom. He's not trying to do a full frontal assault on a walled Canaanite city. He's going to work by stealth. This is like seal team Abram here. And he brought back all, notice the result. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And so this picture that we see on the flip side is, is this attitude that Abram has, look, this is, this is righteous indignation. Look, I, I'm not standing for this. You, you can't come in here and, and take away the righteous things of God and the people of God and expect me to do nothing about it. And Abraham takes off in pursuit. Now remember how old he is. He is not a spring chicken. He is an, he is an aged man, but he is a warrior as an aged man. He loves God so much he doesn't care what his body feels like he cares that he's doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord I love this picture of Abram and actually his name at this point in time because he 's still abram he 's not actually Abraham yet, but for reference we we kind of make the connection so everybody's thinking it's the same guy Abram and Abraham but he 's still Abram and his mean his name actually means at this time uh, the clearest translation, is the outsider. He's, he's not really any but on anybody's side except God's. He's on God's side. And that's a good place for us to be. As individuals, the best place for you to be is wherever God is. And whatever God's doing. If God's in it, do it. If he's not in it, don't do it. That, that's the wisdom of, of a warrior and he took things the right way. Abram wasn't going, well, you know, if I, if I leave my sheep and my goats and all the stuff that I got here, you know, I might come back and there won't be anything here. If you can't trust God to take care of what you have here and now, then why would you trust God to take care of anything else? It's a very simple process of thinking. It's like if the Lord doesn't have it, the Lord doesn't have it. Amen? If he's not for you, then you are in trouble anyway. And so Abram is saying, look, I know God is the God of the lower Jordan Valley down by Saddam. And I know God is going to go with us as we travel up the Jordan Valley to Dan. And when we travel up close to Damascus, he's going with us there as well. And when I get back, I expect my stuff to be there because God's duty is to take care of it. And if it's not there when I get back, then I didn't need it. He's got the right perspective on his stuff. I remember when Connie and I packed our stuff up to head off to Austria. You know, it's kind of a weird thing. You know, you just pack your whole life up and you stick what kind of is left of it inside of a mini storage. And you buy one-way tickets to a foreign country. And, you know, you get there and for all you know, you're staying there the rest of your life. And you just don't care. So it's like of the stuff there when you get back in. In our case, the stuff wasn't there when we got back because we had somehow missed a payment on a storage and so they sold all our stuff. You, you see, you kind of have to tread lightly while you're on this earth. You, you kind of have to take it a, a, and look, God, this was your stuff anyway. But I know what you've called me to do because my nephew is righteous and he's up there in dan and i'm gonna go get him that's a warrior that's a man who's prepared to do what god told you to do And i, I love the fact because you know what lot's kind of a knucklehead amen well, sometimes i think about Lot, it's just like you know you shouldn't just left him in the asphalt pit or something and it's like he's not exactly i'm just being honest here it's not like the cream of the crop I'm thinking, when I think of Lot, I kind of think, I would have been sitting there go, go, I told you. I told you not to move into Sodom. And you got exactly, you know, some of you are probably thinking, you're thinking like me. Yeah, I probably would have told them the same thing. If you're honest, I think we think that way. Aren't you glad God doesn't think that way? God goes after the one. He leaves the ninety 99, he goes after the one. He goes after knuckleheads. He, he chases down that, that person who doesn't quite get it most of the time. I think sometimes we lose compassion and we lose tenderness well before God does. God's saying, Jeff, go after him. And I'm saying, uh-uh, I don't want to. Have you ever talked to him? Have you ever sat down with her? You ever listen to their story? I'm, I'm, nope, not doing it anymore. God and I have conversations every once in a while like this. He always wins. So I'm just telling you, he always wins. And then he looks me in the eye, you know, figuratively speaking. He says, Jeffrey, I want you to continue. I want you to go after him. You got to talk to him again, talk to him again. If you got to tell him the same thing a different way, tell him the same thing a different way, but go after him. You were a knucklehead too. It's like, ah, I hate that part. You're right, Lord. I have not always been the supremely holy person that I am right now. <laughs> kind of helps to think that way, doesn't it? You know, it's like, as you age in Christ, it's kind of like, oh, that's right. I was, ooh, I was not. Matter of fact, I was worse than that. <laughs> Keep it in perspective. God's grace working in all of our lives enables us to stand. We see some very wise ways here to wage war. We have to be careful not to compromise. Got to be careful not to compromise, family. Family. Compromise almost always leads to other compromise. And maybe you don't like hearing that, but I'm telling you, compromise almost always leads to further compromise. If you'll compromise in little things, it becomes less difficult to compromise in the next greater thing. And so on and so forth. I've talked to so many people who will say some version of this, I never thought I would do, fill in the blank. And it began with some little area of compromise. It began with a little tiny lie. It it began with a little bit of a behavioral thing. It began with one drink. It began with, you know, a hit on somebody's bong. It, It began with some thing of compromise. And I'm trying to help you understand this, because you may feel liberty to live someplace close to Sodom. You understand what I'm saying? You may feel like it's, well, you know what, this is nice property, it's cheap. You may like the view from that place that was just away from Sodom, but because your tent is pitched towards Sodom, this is a picture of what it means for us to compromise as believers. We know we're not supposed to be there, and we can actually truthfully say, well, I don't live in Sodom. But the fact of the matter is, you actually kind of want to live in Sodom because that's what you're looking at. That's, you, the door of your tent is pitched that way. And so be careful. We have to be quick to, to recognize areas in our walk and in our ministry to where we have compromised. We, we can't do that. You see, we can compromise when it comes to general welfare and taking care of people and those kinds of things. We we can work with some of the people in the world, but when it comes to the things of God, we got to do those things God's way. We hold God's opinion. We cannot be unequally yoked to the world. We have to have one head, and that's the Lord. We want to be servants. This is this is Abram the servant. This is the very thing that you see in Joseph in Egypt. This is what you see in Nehemiah serving a heathen king. This is what you see in Daniel in Babylon. This is what you see in Esther. A servant. Someone says, Lord, if you send me, I'll go. If it's your plan, it's my plan. You tell me what it is, I'll do it. Your servant hears, here am I, Lord, as Isaiah said, send me. I'll do it. First name on the list. So Abram goes after his brother in the the spirit, Lot, his, his nephew. So Abram puts together an awesome army, and I'll wrap it up. Look at some of these things that you can see in this passage, just these few verses. The first thing, they were born in his house. Abram knew the character of these men that were with him because they were born in his house in a literal sense like we think of whatever is born of God overcomes the world these were fellow members of righteousness they had a care for the things of God he knew them so many Christians get entangled with the things of the world and they have no idea who they are actually engaged in things with just like oh well whatever you know it's okay think I can make some money doing this. You see, that victory that we have is the victory that overcomes the world is people of faith. The victory victory that overcomes the world is the victory of faith. It's not a victory of picking the best and the brightest. It's walking with other people who walk with the Lord. These guys were well-armed. And again, I just turn your attention to the armor that's available to you in Ephesians 6. They were battle ready. They weren't sitting around going, well, you know, I don't think we're ever going to go to war. So who needs this stuff? There goes prayer. There goes the word. Ah, I don't need the helmet of salvation anymore. Toss that. They were ready for battle. They were well armed. It takes more than zeal. It takes more than courage. It takes being armed. It takes being ready. Ready. Makes us standing. going, you know what? I'm going to get attacked some point in time. I better be ready for when I get attacked. Shield of faith is up. uh, I don't need faith. You know, I believe in science. Not your Libre thing. (laughs) I believe in science. Science is great. But science is not a replacement for your faith. If science kills your faith, then you better check your science. You need to be well armed. You need to take out the word of God in prayer. And if you take out the word of God, exactly as Acts 6.4 says and prayer, and you use those two things, that's how you become the third thing, well trained. That's where you get it from. That's the training manual. You see, Abram's men were trained because they sat with Abram at the altar and they worshiped God. We would look at it as we sit with our Bibles. We sit with other people who love the Lord. We listen to the word. We hear the word of the Lord. We are thereby trained and ready for those things which God has for us. A fourth thing is that they believed in their leader. Abram and his allies, they're going to take this journey. They're leaving everything. They're going on an expeditionary force. Abram's life must have been so stellar that they could look at Abram's life and say, I don't care where you're going. I'm going with you. You can see that type of leadership in people; it's visible, and they're easy to follow because they follow God. There's sometimes when with Pastor Chuck, I'm just like, "Yeah, this is like walking around with Jesus. It's like somehow he knows stuff that nobody else knows." It was easy to follow. It was not hard at all. They believed in their leader. That's how Joshua conquered the promised land, amen? That's how David defeated the armies of Israel, amen? He took a small group of people, and he had mighty men, amen? It wasn't massive men, it was mighty men of valor. And he was a great leader. Joshua was a great leader. The fifth thing, they were united. They They were one in the way they thought things. You know, when the Holy Spirit is leading, guiding, and directing, the Bible says that we are one because we are one with the Father through Jesus' His Son. We become that unity of Ephesians 4. One faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism. We're, We're one that way. We have this incredible unity that gives us vision and purpose. It's all unified. We don't start infighting. We don't start side wars. You know, these guys could have moved up the Jordan Valley and it's like, well, you know, I really don't feel like going any further. They were one. They had one focus. They had one vision and they moved as one. Pastor Chuck used to always say, there's an awful lot of generals and not enough privates. There's an awful lot of ideas and not enough warriors to carry out those ideas. You got to have unity to do that. And to that end, they were single-minded in their purpose. Their goal was not personal revenge. Their goal was victory. They were going to go accomplish something, and when they got done, they were going home. They weren't going to take things away from the Danites. They weren't going to take other property or land. They went to bring the righteous Lot and his family back to settle with the rest of the righteous people. It's kind of a picture how when you have somebody that you know maybe is stumbling and they're they're falling away, they're, they're going away from the Lord, and you go after them and say, you know what, you need to get back in church. You need to come back to the Lord. You're going the wrong direction. Now I'm going to hunt you down until you come back. If you're a great friend, you'll do that. You don't let people go easily. And finally, they live to do God's will. This is Paul would write to Timothy no one engaged in warfare there in 2 Timothy chapter 2 entangles himself with the affairs of this world. You don't get all tangled up in the stuff that's here because we have a greater purpose. And that's to accomplish God's will. And again, doesn't mean that you're not going to have to buy a house. doesn't mean that you're not going to have a car. You know, people often look at these and take a legalistic view of it as, well, you know, Pastor Jeff said, I sold my kids. Said I didn't need them. <laughs> it's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, you don't get tangled up in it. You, you don't get so wrapped up in it that if God removes something or replaces something else, he moves your cheese, okay? <laughs> that you're okay if he moves your cheese. It's like, it's okay, God, if you see that needs to be done. I don't want to get entangled. I want to please the one who enlisted me as a good soldier. That's what Paul said to Timothy. And you can see the opposite of that. In a couple of lives in Joshua seven. There's a guy named Achan. He got entangled to the things of this world. His eyes were set on money. So much so that he would he would lie to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he was like no, I didn't take it. He got entangled talk about a guy that was entangled Samson very entangled in the things of this life even Solomon to some extent was entangled in the things of this life he was wise but man did he get tangled up with stuff how about Saul Saul was so burnt up with raging jealousy that there might be somebody else that the people preferred that he lost his mind. All because of a position. And final results, I'm going to bring the worship team back out. The final result is this. Abram wins. The Spirit wins. The righteous win. Can I tell you something? The righteous will win. We, we will win, whether it's here now, right now in this life, or whether it's in the hereafter, we win. That's the end of the story. The end of the story is we win. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. There is no weapon fashioned against us that can prosper, says the Lord. Amen? Amen. So we're, we're fighting not for a victory, but from victory. We're, we're already victorious in that sense. Abram understood that. And so you see a couple of things as we close this up. The goodness of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord should have led Lot to repentance, which simply means a directional change. It means to acknowledge wrong, turn around and go the other way. That's what repentance means means to do a 180 in that sense. But instead of repenting, he returned. Can I tell you that is a fatal plan of action for every believer? When God has already rescued you once, when God has already corrected you, to not repent but to return to the vomit is to put yourself directly in harm's way. And it is fatal. It can cost you big time. When God delivers you, please in Jesus' name, do not make him snatch you a second, third, fourth, fiftieth, or hundredth time from Sodom. Because each time he has to come after you, the price likely will be higher. The damage will be greater. The destruction to your family, to to you as a person in the Lord, will likely be something that you will not like. It's going to be painful. Very, very sad to me when, when you watch people who know better say, well, you know, I'm not really all that worried about it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You, you see, for us, as, as we think on these things, Abraham will, will be ultimately, who is Abram now, the father of the faithful. But Lot is the father of backsliders. The faithless, the, the ones who Scripture says, they're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, are saved as though by fire. In other words, they're scorching. They're, they're smoking. They get into... Can you imagine, figuratively speaking, you get to heaven and your clothes are on fire because you almost didn't make it? That's not a good thing. You don't want to be a lot. You want to be an Abram. You want to have an abundant entrance into the kingdom. You want the Lord to be tossing a party when you get there. It's like, look, they're here. Not, whoo, you made it. <laughs> You almost didn't, but you made it. I want God to say, Well done, welcome in, not, You're kind of well done. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? You might want to put those glows out because they're smoky. You see, this war was between flesh and spirit. I want to get to heaven and arrive like royalty. When I get there, I'll toss my crown at Jesus' feet, but I don't want to just get in on fire. I want to get there having been on fire while I was here. Amen? Father, thank you for your goodness to us, and and we pray in this example of this righteous man, Lot, who was an example of how not to do things. Lord, we pray that we'd be like Abram, We know we're going to make some mistakes, but when we make them, we repent and return right back to you, not return back to the sin. And so, Lord, help us to dwell in a tent, have our altar nicely fitted for you. Lord, we we pray that you would bless us with your presence in our lives. Pray that you'd keep us wherever we go. We're grateful for your love for us. Thank you for your word and its power to help us understand how you Lord, work in this world. We thank you for the example of Abram. In Jesus' name, amen.